we are concluding our study tonight in Colossians, uh, the, the letter to the Colossians. If you would open up in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, uh, that's where we're going to begin. Well, actually, we'll back up into chapter 3, verse 18, because we didn't quite finish chapter 3 last time. But again, uh, you know, this was a study that we have been going through the, uh, the, this letter, chapter by chapter. I was hoping it would take us, you know, four quick weeks. But of course, with uh, sicknesses and CYC and stuff, uh, we uh, are concluding it tonight. So it's been a couple of months uh, since we began uh, this study. But let us think back to Luke chapter 24. If you're familiar with this count after Jesus has been resurrected, uh, you remember there's these two men. They're leaving Jerusalem and they're on their way to this uh, city called Emmaus. Uh, it's about seven miles uh, away from Jerusalem. And uh, they're sadly uh, walking away uh, because uh, what they thought was going to happen did not happen in their minds. And if you recall, an individual comes and he tags along with the two men as they're walking. One of their names is Cleopas. We don't know the other name of the other man, but uh, Jesus tags along with them, although they don't understand that it's Jesus at that time. And, and Jesus is talking with them and he's asking them, what's up? You know, what's going on? And they're shocked. They're shocked that Jesus, uh, they say, are you the only person who, who doesn't know what just happened in Jerusalem? Uh, that, that this man, Jesus, who we thought was the Christ, who we thought was the Messiah, was crucified. You know, they were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem uh, Israel. Well, Jesus at that point starts teaching them. If you recall, he starts teaching them and explaining to them how the Christ had to die and to be resurrected three days later. And he was, as Luke chapter 24 tells us, he was explaining himself through the scriptures. Well, later that evening, as they go to the place where they stop and they're about to have dinner together, they finally make the connection that they are in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus vanishes from their, from their uh, spot together. And it says there in the chapter, it said, the two men together looking at one another say, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And again, that's the, the point that uh, I was hoping uh, in the study of the book of Colossians that we're doing together is that, you know, as we go through a verse by verse, you know, that we also get that burning desire to know more about Jesus. Again, we, we've covered Colossians chapter one, the supremacy of Christ. We saw that throughout the whole uh, chapter, that Christ is supreme, that he is the uh, firstborn of all creation, that he is the image of the invisible God. And then we got to Colossians two, and we noticed that uh, Paul had some things to uh, let them know to be aware of, beware of self-imposed uh, worship. Beware of people trying to bind on you things from the old law, from the law of Moses. And then chapter three that we t looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, we see that Jesus, or excuse me, that Paul is moving towards a more practical section in the book of Colossians and talking about them, about their new life in Christ. Remember, he begins that chapter by saying, if you have been raised up with Christ, you know, keep seeking the things above, set your mind on the things above. He tells them to put off their old self, put off their old man and put on the new man, right? Put on the new self. And you remember, he gives a laundry list of things that they need to stop doing. And then he gives them a list of things that they need to start doing, right? Uh, forgiving one another and encouraging one another and helping one another. And of course, the, the, the final thing that he says, but above all else, 
love. Put on love. So let's continue our study again. Hopefully we will finish this tonight in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18, where we left off last week, as Paul is going to uh, let us know how I uh, relate to people at home and in the workplace. And again, we are in this practical section of the book of Colossians, how we as Christians should act in the world. This is what Paul is trying to get through to them. And so let's notice some things starting in verse 18 through 21. Paul writes this. He says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Okay, so Paul has, in this first section here, he's pointing out four different groups of individuals, and he starts off with the wives. Right? Headship within Scripture uh, is something that has been divinely imposed uh, since the beginning of mankind. And notice a couple of passages that uh, Paul writes uh, elsewhere, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says this, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. You know, as Paul is laying out divine authority here. He says God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. Uh, notice what he also says in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 and 23. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, uh, very similar to the passage we just read. Paul says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. You know, passages like these in, you know, our modern world, you know, they, they see it as offensive, right? Words like submit, submission, head of, you know, these are words that people, you know, sort of fear without really knowing uh, the full context, the full meaning of these words. You know, the Apostle Paul has been labeled as misogynistic, sexist in his writings because of passages like these. But Christianity, you know, when we study Christianity, it elevates women to a place and places them on a pedestal unknown before that time period uh, that Paul is writing about. And so Paul's saying, again, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, Wives, you want to honor God, be subject to your husbands. You know, honor your husband. Respect the leadership position that God bestowed upon him. Right? Someone has to be the leader in this, uh, in this uh, organization, in this uh, family uh, matter that he has established. And God set the man uh, to be that. You know, our God is a God of order. You know, we see that again in Scripture. We see in the church, right, the, the, the church is to submit uh, to the eldership if there's an eldership within the congregation. Uh, we, we see that the people are to submit to uh, their government as long as the government doesn't, doesn't impose anything on them that is contrary to Scripture. And God put man in charge of the home, again, giving him uh, that role in spiritual leadership. You know, even Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, he's talking to uh, women who may be married to uh, non-Christians in 1 Peter chapter 3. And even if your husband is a non-Christian, you know, Peter says, win him over by your behavior. Right? Again, as long as it doesn't violate scripture, as long as your husband doesn't ask you to do something that would um, dishonor the word of God, 
Be submissive to him, Peter says. Again, uh, wives, be subject to your husbands. And then he goes on to the husbands in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And that word there for love, love your wives, is agape love, right? It's not a, a romantic love, but it's I want what's best for you. And there's no better passage within Scripture than 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, to understand agape love. You know, we hear these, these words addressed in weddings all the time. You know, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Right? That's agape love. That, that's the love that, that God, uh, through Paul's writing here, is uh, commanding that, that husbands love their wives in such a way. Why? Because he says, do not be bitter or harsh towards them, because this is what pleases God. And then he moves on to the children. Right? And verse 20, the children are commanded to obey, you know, listen to, yield to the instructions of their parents. You know, I've mentioned a couple of times that uh, the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians are very similar. Right? Ephesians is more emphasizing the church and Colossians is more emphasizing the Christ. Uh, but they have some very similar verses within them. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, uh, Paul gives us a little bit more detail into the thoughts that he just had about children. Ephesians chapter 6, he says, uh, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Right, that's an interesting passage, right? The, uh, obey your parents so that you may live long on the earth. Well, what's he getting at? Well, as a general rule, right, if you grow up learning to obey your parents, obeying authority, uh, you're going to live a longer life. You know, you're, you're not going to be thrown uh, maybe into prison or be imprisoned. Uh, you're, you're going to learn to respect your elders, respect society, and to, uh, as Paul puts it here, live longer. You know, that's his message for, for the children. Where there is no respect for parents, again, there is no respect for society for those in authority. You know, we see here that Paul, he's pretty much touching everybody, right? Wives, husbands, children. And then verse 21, he, he talks to the fathers. Again, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. And again, uh, very similarly in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right? Do not exasperate. Do not provoke your children. Well, how can we do that? How can, as fathers, uh, exasperate or provoke your children? Well, one of the things is, uh, you know, uh, being a father is being consistent. Right? If, if at one time something is wrong, then uh, the next time the children commits that, uh, same act, it should be wrong then as well. Uh, you shouldn't get a free pass, right? Because uh, as he says here, do not frustrate your children. Uh, do not exasperate them. Do not provoke them. And again, uh, we have um, Paul going through uh, as these Christians in Colossae, you know, if you're a wife, this is what I need you to hear. If you're a husband, if you're children, if you're a father. And then let's notice as he moves on into verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to switch his focus towards 
uh, towards the servants and their masters, or what we would more uh, look towards as employees and bosses in today's. But let's read these passages. Paul says, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Again, how I relate to people uh, in the workplace. You know, that's how we can take these passages today. The context, again, is of a servant relationship with his master. And we understand that in that society, you know, some 2,000 years ago, that slavery was, you know, it was accepted in that society. Uh, If you were way in debt, you know, sometimes you had to uh, sell yourself to uh, someone else to get out of that debt. But we understand that, you know, the Bible, the principle, the principles of Christianity, you know, when when we put those into place, as Paul writes here, you know, those things uh, tend to fade out of society as Christianity spread in the first century. So did that 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 type of slavery that we saw in in the first century in Jewish uh, history. Uh, But today, again, we can relate these passages to the workplace. And it's interesting that Paul devotes at least three verses here to the servant. Uh, he addresses more verses here than he did to the wife and the husband and the father. But he again says, although you have an earthly master, again, the point is never forget who your, who your true master is, who your heavenly master is first and foremost, right? Obey your boss. Put in the work necessary, uh, not just when the boss is watching. You know, there's a phrase that uh, you, you might after you might hear from time to time. You know, when the cat's away, the mice will play, right? You're, you're, maybe you have a substitute teacher that day, or maybe again your boss is out sick that day, and we tend to want to maybe slack off a little bit and maybe not put in uh, a hard day work uh, because no one's there watching you, right? But but Paul's reminding us that. Um, it's not ultimately our, our earthly boss who we are or we should be concerned about, but it's with our heavenly father. It's our heavenly master. Um, Christians, Christians should be the hardest working uh, employees that can be found today. Employers love to hire Christians, right? They, they know that they're going to be trustworthy. They know that they're going to be hardworking, and um, they love to hire Christians. And again, we need to ultimately remember who we are working for, our Heavenly Father. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, and again, I told you that there were sometimes page breaks or chapter breaks that don't necessarily make sense. Uh, but he continues his thoughts in chapter 4, verse 1, speaking to the master, speaking to the boss. Grant for your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Again, telling them, do not mistreat your staff. Be just and be fair. Again, we're going to conclude this section uh, seeing that Paul is telling us as Christians, this is you know, what we must do to live in harmony with all. How I relate to people in, in the home and in the workplace.
Let's continue on into chapter 4. And notice in verses 2 through 6 that Paul is going to shift gears here and start talking about how I should share the gospel with others. Uh, Let's read the first few verses, starting in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. How I share the gospel with others. We notice first he tells us that we need to focus on prayer. Start there. Devote yourself to prayer, he says. Keep on praying. But then notice in verse 3, he, he shifts a little bit and says, but pray for us as well. You know, notice he doesn't ask that the Christians there pray for his imprisonment. Right? He's in prison at the time that he's writing this letter. He's not asking them to pray for his imprisonment, for his well-being there. But he prays that an open door for the word of God uh, may be opened. You know, there's a, uh, there's a mission work uh, called the World English Institute. Maybe you're familiar with it. Uh, maybe you're not. Uh, but they, they do something very interesting where they uh, recruit volunteers, members of the church, to offer to teach English over the Internet to uh, people in other countries that want to learn English. And it's totally volunteer basis. And, uh, you know, you sign up to be a volunteer and uh, you, you will get assigned a couple of students uh, from overseas somewhere that, who want to learn English. And you teach them, you know, how to speak English. But here's the catch. You're using the Bible as the curriculum. You're using these Bible uh, programs that that they have, this curriculum, to teach them how to speak English. And so as they learn to speak English, you know, they're also learning the Bible. And then the point of this mission work is to then, towards the end of it, is to, you know, convert them to Christ. To, to, to let them see what they have been learning and get that connection. And that's really what you know, Paul is talking about with that open door, right? You're getting your foot in the door with these people from around the world that you probably would never meet, and you attempt to convert them to Christianity. Paul is in prison right now. He is probably around individuals that he would never see uh, usually in a normal circumstance. They might be locked up away for, for life. But now he has the opportunity to preach to them the gospel. And again, he's not asking for prayers to get out of there, but he's asking for prayers for an open door that he may present them to the gospel. Do you and I pray for open doors? You know, that's a prayer that I wonder might be too frightening for us, right? To pray, Lord, send me someone to teach or Lord, send me someone, send someone my way that I can share the gospel with. You know, that might be a prayer that's too frightening for us. And maybe it's a prayer that we need to start praying as well. As Paul mentions here, to pray for doors to be opened. And also notice in verse 4, I love this verse, because Paul has requested prayers to speak in an understandable manner. You know, that should be the, the goal of all gospel preaching, is to be able to preach and teach in such a way that everyone can understand. Right? There, there are sayings that I remember in preaching school that, you know, when they're teaching you uh, how, to, how to preach and deliver a message, they would say something like, you know, put the cookies on the lowest shelf. 
Right? If your message is this cookie jar, you know, don't put it way up high where no one can get to it and understand it, but put it on the lowest shelf. Put it down there so that even you know, seven and eight-year-olds can get the message, can understand what's being preached. Or lay the hay where the calf can eat. Again, another expression that they, they drilled in us. You know, as a preacher, you know, I appreciate it when, when uh, men uh, pray, you know, that, that prayer of, you know, may the preacher have a ready recollection of what he's about to preach or, or that he's about to preach in a way, in such a way that, you know, it, it'll touch someone's heart. Right. I appreciate those prayers. I know other preachers appreciate those prayers because uh, we want to pray that just like Paul says in verse four, that the message that we have is clear how uh, we are preaching. And notice the verses five through six. Paul says, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunities. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You know, now, first he says pray, and now he says act wisely towards outsiders. Focus on those who are outside of the church, right? Now, Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5 that we are the light of the world. You know, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, why would you light a lamp and put it under a lampstand, but put it out so that all can see, right? We have opportunities all around us, Paul says, and people are watching. So we need to make the most of those opportunities. But also, in verse 6, but in those opportunities, make sure that we season it with salt. You know, I worked four years uh, right out of college in this small town called Holland, Michigan. It was a beautiful, uh, beautiful city. Uh, by the name of it, you could probably guess that it, it was a Dutch city. You know, tulips and windmills were everywhere. And if you know anything about Dutch cooking, uh, when we you know, go out to eat for lunch and stuff, is that you know, Dutch cuisine is a little bland. And that was always kind of the joke that, uh, the, that they had in the office was make sure to bring the salt or make sure to bring the pepper. In the same way we flavor food, we need to flavor our speech. You know, if our speech is the main course, you know, what everyone's coming to partake in and looking forward to, you know, we need to make sure that we season it, our speech, with salt. Uh, my kids uh, read a book and it has a saying in there that, you know, a, a little salt is an insult but too much salt is an assault. And, and that again, that's true when it comes to uh, you know, teaching the word of God. Again, salt improves the taste of food, right? It makes it more tasteful. And, and in the same way, when we speak it, it makes it more tactful. We make it more acceptable. You know, this is different from sugarcoating uh, the word of God, but this is salting the word of God, seasoning with salt, you know, making it more appealing to those who hear. And again, as a Christian, I must be conscious of those around me and ready to act. And let's finally, let's notice as we conclude uh, the book of Colossians, and this section won't take as long, how I serve him. Verses 7 through 18. Paul writes, As to my affairs, Tychius, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. 
and also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers of the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of our number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Erechipus, uh, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. You know, there is a lot that we could say about this passage there are a lot of unsung heroes of the faith, you know, people that Paul mentions, you know, people that aren't in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, the hall of faith. But these are some unsung heroes of the faith. Some of them are being mentioned uh, maybe once or twice throughout Scripture. Maybe some of these have only shown up once, you know, but Paul, you know, he's using these names, name dropping as a way of validating that, hey, I know some of the same common people. And so you can trust me. And we notice some of these uh, individuals. Let's just pick out a, a few. Uh, he mentions in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 10, a man by the name of Mark, who was Barnabas's cousin. Uh, maybe we also know him as John Mark within Scripture. This is the man who wrote the Gospel of Mark. In the book of Acts, uh, during the first missionary journey of Paul, uh, Mark leaves that journey. And Paul, when they go to do the second missionary journey, we remember Paul doesn't want to bring uh, Mark with them. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they have uh, uh, sort of a conflict there. So Barnabas goes away and he takes John Mark and uh, Paul, he takes Silas and they go on a separate, different mission. But the point is, uh, what's fascinating is here we have John Mark uh, uh, that Paul says is useful for my ministry, right? They've reconciled. Uh, they might have had, you know, butting heads about something and one went one way and one went the other. But here when Paul is in prison and he needs the help of the brethren, uh, it's John Mark who he mentions. Also, uh, we can notice a man by the name of Demas in verse 14. Demas is mentioned a couple times within Scripture, here in Colossians chapter 4 and in Philemon, and he's there both times described as Paul's fellow worker. But when uh, Paul comes around to writing 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he mentions that Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Right? Demas left the service of Paul. Demas left Christianity for, for this present world. And again, that's another uh, whole other sermon that we could follow and look at Demas as not that he progressed towards Christ, but that he progressed away. And that, that those who at once were saved were in Christ are now lost. Verse uh, 15 and 16, as we close uh, this study, you know, this is really what uh, fired me up to to preach this lesson on Colossians. Because again, look at verse 16. When this letter is read among you, right? Paul knew, or he wanted that the letter to the, the church at Colossae to read this letter together, 
to, to stand up and have it read to everyone. And then that other letter that he had sent to the church in Laodicea, when they get that, to again read it in front of everyone. You know, we just did that, right? It took us a little a while, but we read through the entire book of Colossians together. Again, that was Paul's instructions for them. And we recall that Paul did not write, you know, in this letter in chapters and verses like we see it, but rather, you know, it was a letter, right? He starts off to the, to the Colossians, and, and it's just like a letter, a letter you and I would read or write. You know, the letters are some of the most personal things uh, that we can do uh, and receive from others. And today it's almost a lost art, is it not? Especially in our days of emails and emojis and texting. But again, Paul lets us, reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness. And although, you know, we just studied together the book of Colossians, it's just one of the 27 books in the New Testament. Uh, my prayer is that, you know, something within these studies sparked your interest uh, to maybe dig deeper uh, into this letter or to, into a subject that maybe you haven't thought of before. But again, I, uh, I love this opportunity to study this way, and maybe in the future we can take another book and do this as well. But I just want to leave you again with uh, Paul what he said in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. This evening, as we offer the invitation, if anyone is subject to the invitation, they're ready to become a Christian, to put on Christ in baptism, or if you need the prayers of this congregation, please let us know as together we stand and sing this song of invitation.